who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Even hardened genre fans will find themselves whimpering at each new revelation. Publishers Weekly. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Infected is a marvel of gonzo in-your-face up-to-the-minute terror. Lincoln Child, New York Times bestselling author of Relic and the Pendergrass series. 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is for mature audiences. It contains graphic violence and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Realm presents Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral. Episode 13. 1853, El Dorado County, California. United States' colonial ambitions extend far beyond North American borders. Commodore Matthew Perry and four U.S. Navy ships visit Japan, forcing them to open up to American trade and end centuries of isolation. Worried about possible pursuit, we once again steered clear of Arroyo de Cantua until we knew we were in the clear. Instead, we traveled north and east into El Dorado County and the foothills of the Sierra Madre. One night we arrived at the remote ranch of a contact named El Fuego Torreón, who fed us beef from his own stock. He also brought us the news that had been sent through the Mexican grapevine. Sheriff Marshall is on your trail, maybe two days behind. Not surprising. 13 men and 15 horses leave an easy trail. People are saying he's not just following your tracks. He's torturing Mexicanos to find out if anybody knows where you are. Torturing? Yes. He and some of the other men have beaten men, choked them, cut them, made them stand naked in the cold. I heard a few have even raped women in front of their men or began to, unless the men said what they knew. The news tore at my insides. I had thought myself steeled against any new outrages from California's white community. But this was a new low. And have those men told them anything useful? Hard to say. 
what seems minor or obvious to us might be helpful to the law. Any little fact they can learn could help them find you. Tres dedos turned to me. So we have to make sure we can't be found. Avoid our usual spots. Yes. I'm sorry we came here at Fuego. I hope we haven't brought you trouble. There's nothing they can do to me that hasn't already been done. One look at Torrejon proved the truth of that. He was perhaps in his mid-forties, but looked decades older. His dark hair streaked with silver, shoulders stooped from a lifetime's hard labor. I have no woman for them to threaten, and my ranch hands would fight like wolves if they came near me. The mention of wolves gave me an idea. Bear Mountain had changed little since my last visit. It was far enough from any settlements that people seldom visited. No gold had been found there, and the presence of the numerous bears, wolves, and other wild predators helped dissuade the merely curious. The cavern below the summit would offer safe refuge for my men, and the rocky slopes would make tracking difficult. If we took care to cover our back trail, finding us would be close to impossible. We took care to cover our back trail. After circling around the base of the mountain and climbing about a third of the way up, we dismounted, left the horses in the care of one man, and walked back over our own tracks for an hour. From that point, we worked to restore the land to the condition it had been in, brushing away hoofprints, strengthening branches, replacing upturned stones and the like. We kept disguising our tracks until we reached the horses again. Hours had passed during which we hadn't put any distance between ourselves and the posse, but we hoped the posse would lose our trail altogether at that point. We continued up the mountain to the cave. From there, we could see the posse's approach and follow their progress once they reached the spot where we had covered our tracks. The posse arrived late that afternoon. I watched through a spyglass as their trackers climbed down from their mounts and studied the ground. They started off on foot this way and that, but couldn't find a clear trail in any direction. Their confusion lifted my spirits. When the sun sank behind the mountains and they still hadn't found the trail, the posse members pitched tents and lit a small fire for cooking. Marshall was there, all right. A thin man, brown-haired, with no mustache. He didn't look like a dangerous type. I had seen him a time or two in his mining days, before he was a sheriff, and never had a problem with him. But I had a problem with him now. Standing near the sheriff was another man who looked familiar. Though it was hard to be certain through the little telescope, but he wore the sky blue of the American army, and I believed him to be the man who nearly shot me back at Garland's draw. Muy bien, hombres. Time to go back down the mountain. Those fellows are in for a surprise. We were in no hurry. Making one's way down Bear Mountain on foot was a dangerous pursuit, especially 
if one took foolish chances. The moon was just a sliver behind high, wispy clouds, and it had risen in the mid-afternoon, so would soon be gone altogether. With me leading the way down game trails I knew, we moved cautiously and quietly, helping one another through the difficult stretches. We wanted to give the posse time to eat, perhaps drink some liquor, and fall asleep. As we neared the camp, we slowed even more. The posse had surely posted guards and it wouldn't do to alert them. Finally, we were close enough to look down upon the camp. Some men slept in the open, others in tents. I turned to Tres Dedos, at my side as always. You see any guards awake? I see one sleeping at his post. Tres Dedos pointed out a man sitting upright with a rifle in his hands, but with his chin against a chest that rose in foul and slumber. I'd post more than one if it was me. I let my gaze travel across the camp and its surroundings until it landed on a man walking toward the camp, adjusting his pants. There, he was pissing. That's decent of him. I hate it when a man can't bring himself to walk far enough away that the smile doesn't drift back before he does. Don't admire him too much to kill him. <sighs> Never. So, two? Any more? There. Tres Dedos tapped my arm and pointed to a man lying down, but rolling and twitching in obvious discomfort. He's no guard, but he's not sleeping soundly. That's for sure. Stomach troubles, maybe. Smells like they had vulture for dinner. Or skunk. Something that shouldn't be eaten anyway. I kept studying the layout. I'd heard there were 32 men at the outset, but rumor had it that some already had dropped out and headed home. I couldn't get a definite count, with some concealed by tents. But with my spyglass earlier, I had counted 14. And I had... 13. Not only were the numbers close, but I had the advantage of surprise and elevation. And my men were wide awake. I gathered them around me and pointed out the camp, the tents, the fire, and the guards. The one who just returned had found the sleeping one and shaken him by the shoulder, rousing him. Too awake for sure. That one on the ground who might or might not be sleeping. No way to know the status of anyone in the tents. The guards moved away from the fire and took a position on opposite sides of the camp, looking outward. Every few minutes, they got up and moved around, keeping themselves alert and sweeping the whole perimeter. They'd chosen a good spot to make camp. Most of it was ringed by large rocks that would block the wind and could provide cover in a fight. Their horses were picketed a short distance away within sight of the camp. I outlined my plan, and the men nodded their agreement. At my direction, some of the biggest of them put their backs to a massive boulder well-rooted in the mountainside. Heaving and grunting, they pushed and pushed until it finally broke free from its resting place. Loose dirt cascaded down the slope and I worried it might alert the posse below. If any fell that far, nobody reacted in a way that I could see. Then the men stopped, but Florencio Cruz 
and Antonio Moreno straining to hold the big stone from underneath. Are we ready, Joaquin? I took a quick last look at the path. Let it go. Cruz and Moreno moved. At the same moment, the men holding the stone from above released it as well. It toppled from where it had rested for what might have been decades or centuries. On the way down, it struck the mountainside a couple of times, breaking other lesser rocks free. The noise was thunderous to us and to the men camped below. Screams of terror reached my ears. I leaned far over for a better view and almost slipped, but Gustavo Zaragoza caught my waistband and held on. The boulder crashed to the earth in the center of the camp, accompanied by a storm of smaller stones. I couldn't see how many men were killed instantly, though some certainly were. Others scrambled away from the rain of stones. Muy bien, hombres. Pick your targets and let's go. I selected a man who'd been hit by a good-sized rock and was stumbling around senselessly, bleeding from the scalp, and I fired my revolver. The range wasn't ideal, but I was shooting almost straight down, so the bullet would strike with plenty of force. My first shot missed, but I hit the man on the fourth try. The others were all shooting by then too, and most of the posse members who'd escaped the initial landslide had fallen. Some though had escaped both and were trying to return fire. After several minutes, no more shots came from below and I could no longer see movement from the camp. I led us back to a game trail I knew. We passed through a rising cloud of dust to arrive at the scene of the carnage. Dead and dying Americans were everywhere. One beside the fire, face down, another with his lower half sticking out of a bloody tent flap, two who never made it out of their bedrolls, parts of what might have been several different people showed at the edges of the great boulder. I didn't see Marshall anywhere. As the odor of burnt powder cleared, I smelled piss and shit, blood and vomit and sweat, the scents of men under fire. Only two of the bodies wore badges. Most of these men were merchants, miners, farmers, husbands and fathers, not deputies. They'd been conscripted or volunteered for a task to which they were unsuited, and they paid the highest price. Inside a tent, oh someone whimpered in obvious agony. I bent over, stuck my head and arm inside the tent, and ended a young man's pain with one shot. I went from there to another tent on the eastern edge and saw a slash at the back of it. The occupants had cut their way out and ran out into the night. Tres Dedos walked up to me. I count ten. Hard to tell how many are under the rock though. Mota, count. Mota nodded and raced around the camp, poking his head into the tents and kicking at bunched blankets. Yes. So four escaped, if my original count was right. Four, more or less. Do you want to try to find them now? Could be dangerous in the dark. I knew that to Tres Dedos, danger wasn't a drawback. It was an attraction. No, let's get some rest and wait until dawn. 
They could get pretty far by then. They won't. They don't know where they are or what they're facing. And besides, they're on my mountain. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. The only wounded among us was Gregorio Lopez, who had a scrape on his right cheek. Not from a bullet or a rifle ball, but from rock fragments thrown up by a bullet hitting stone. My men gathered up the posse's weapons and ammunition. We deposited those near the horses. I posted three guards, and the rest of us settled down to sleep until daybreak. We didn't bury the bodies. Once we left, wolves and coyotes and possibly bears would move in. Nature could deal with the mess. When the sun rose, we scoured the edge of the camp for signs of the men who'd escaped through the tent wall. Finding some broken branches, along with prints from a few different boots, I put a man in charge of watching the extra horses we just acquired, while the rest of us mounted up and set off in pursuit. I wasn't worried about losing the surviving members of the posse. Even if the men made it off the mountain, they were on foot and we had their horses. For the first stretch, all four pair of boots went in the same general direction. But then, two pairs had taken a game trail that led farther up the mountain, and the other two had seemingly missed the trail in the dark and continued in a more or less straight line, cutting through the thick underbrush. Mota, who was the best tracker among us, turned to me. Should we split up? No. 
That trail is only going to take those men higher up, so we'll have more time to catch up to them. Let's stay with these two for now. After another mile or so, the line the two men took intersected into another game trail. They had taken this one, turning downslope to get off the mountain. The men had made no effort to hide their tracks. In less than an hour, Volvia caught a glimpse of them and pointed them out to the rest of us. Only one wore a hat, a dusty black bowler. The other one was bareheaded and had a long gun resting on his shoulder. Lopez volunteered to kill them from where he stood. He was perhaps marksman enough to do it, but the distance was still great. Cerquémonos. I want to see if one of them is that sheriff. The two Americans soon realized they were being followed. They took off at a run. I put my heels to the horses and sped up to a trot. The men on foot reached a level spot with rocky soil, sparse vegetation, and a few large boulders that had fallen from the height over the centuries. They ducked behind one of the largest of the fallen boulders. The one with the long gun loaded it quickly and rested it on the boulder. He aimed and fired, but in his rush, he shot high, his ball sawing far over our heads. The other man had a revolver, which he fired several times. Two of his shots hit Tres Dedos' horse. The animal stumbled and fell, pitching Tres Dedos into the dirt. Maldita sea! Not another horse! He rose and dusted himself off. His face was bloody from scraping against the earth. He stormed toward the rock, seemingly oblivious to the fact that the men still had guns. Son míos! They're mine! Cousin, espera! You men, throw down those guns. You have no chance against all of us. The bareheaded one did the talking. What kind of chance do we got without him? A fair question. But the truth is, you men aren't very good shots. And you've made my friend very angry. At this point, I suspect he'd take both of you at once. Without any guns. Is that right, Jack? I rarely used the name that the Americans had given to Tres Dedos, but it had the desired effect. The men's eyes widened and their mouths dropped open. They were being asked to confront the dreaded three-finger Jack. Two to one, but with no firearms in play. Look, I ain't no fighting man. I came out here to work the diggings. I went bust, and now I work in the store. I ain't never hurt nobody. But you were willing to kill us, if you could have. You killed a bunch of Americans, took their gold. So, to punish killing, you would kill others? An eye for an eye, it's in the Bible. Then if you would kill us, what's wrong with us killing you? By now, Tres Dedos was almost upon them. They hadn't given up their guns or come out from behind the big rock. Every few seconds, the one in the hat looked over at Tres Dedos like he was some demon from hell. I, I, I just, look, I don't want no trouble. The man in the bowler still hadn't spoken. You were just shooting at us and your friend killed my friend's horse. There has to be some kind of payback, don't you think? 
The bareheaded one snatched the revolver from the other man's grip and threw it toward the outlaws. I mean, me, me, I mean, I mean, he, he, he's the one that shot the horse. I only fired the one shot over your heads, like to, like to scare you is all. You want to fight somebody? Fight, fight him. The look of rage on the other man's face was almost comical. Charlie, what the hell are you doing? I, I'm just saying, you're the one who shot the fattest horse. Anybody got an answer for that? I mean, sure, but you. Damn you, Charlie. You lily-livered son of a- Gentlemen, that, that was an interesting choice you made, Charlie. But that's not the decision you face right now. The only decision you have is two against one or 11 against two. And I assure you, unlike my friend, Three-Finger Jack, we won't hesitate to use our guns. The only reason you're not dead yet is that Jack wants to do it himself. Charlie and the man in the bowler faced each other, fear and fury warring within them both. Finally, Bowler nodded, and Charlie did the same. Two? Against one? Are you sure? We beat him? What happens? If you beat him, we give you two horses and send you on your way. Honest? Yes. But you won't beat him. We'll die trying. That's exactly what you'll do. Tres Dedos took off his sarape and his sombrero and handed them to Lopez. He removed two pistols from his belt and handed those over as well. For their part, Charlie and the man in the bowler followed through on their agreement. Charlie tossed his rifle down and both men stepped out from behind the rock. Without being told to, my men spread out, making a circle around the combatants. Tres Dedos paused briefly and looked up at me, his anger undiminished. When this is over, if I'm dead, let those men live. That's the agreement. But before you send them on their way, cut off their balls. He let out a low growl, sounding more like an angry bear than a human being, and charged Bowler. That man had stayed largely quiet throughout the confrontation. So although I knew Charlie's name and story, I knew nothing of the other's background. The man met Tres Dedos' charge with feet planted, widespread, giving him balance and stability. As Tres Dedos neared him, he threw an awkward punch while still on the move. Bowler dodged it easily and let Tres Dedos' forward momentum carry him too close to throw another. He grabbed Tres Dedos' outflung arm and yanked on it. Off balance, Tres Dedos stumbled and Bowler slammed the knee into his chest. Air blew out of him in a huff. Bowler pressed his advantage. He lashed out with his fist, landing a flurry of blows against Tres Dedos' face and neck, staggering him. Charlie joined in, positioning himself behind Tres Dedos and kicking, his boot crashing into Tres Dedos' lower back. When Tres Dedos whipped his head around to see this new assailant, Bowler doubled his fists together and swung them into Tres Dedos' jaw. 
For the first time, I considered the possibility that my friend might lose. Against Charlie alone, Tres Dedos would already be done, wiping his hands of the other man's blood. But the man in the bowler hat proved to be a challenge of a more serious nature. Already, blood flowed from Tres Dedos' nose and mouth like water from a pump. He looked dizzy, reeling as he fought for balance. Then, Bowler made his first mistake. Apparently, believing Tres Dedos already beaten, he wrapped his hands around Tres Dedos' throat and started to squeeze. But Tres Dedos managed to lower his head and bit down on Bowler's forearm. Bowler screamed as the teeth sunk in and tore. After a moment, Tres Dedos whipped his head up again. A chunk of bloody flesh clenched between his teeth. He spat it in Bowler's face and Bowler released Tres Dedos' throat. Tres Dedos roared up and lunged at him. Now the advantage was his. Bowler's ruined arm gushed blood, his face paled, and he was unsteady on his feet. When Tres Dedos plowed into him, he went down. Tres Dedos straddled him and rained punches down, hoping Bowler's face. Bowler writhed under the attack, but the fight had gone out of him. When Tres Dedos realized his opponent was no longer striking back, he gripped Bowler's throat, pressing his thumbs against either side of his windpipe. Bowler fought for breath, his feet kicking, but after a few minutes, he was still. Tres Dedos rose quickly, smashed a boot against Bowler's face for good measure, and looked for the second man. But Charlie had curled up in a bar, sobbing, his back against the boulder like he wanted to sink into it. When Tres Dedos took a step toward him, Charlie let out a panic cry. I didn't really blame him. Tres Dedos looked more monster than man, blood-soaked, barrel-chest heaving, face a rictus of rage and bloodlust. Surprisingly, instead of attacking, Tres Dedos went to one knee beside Charlie. He spoke in quiet, calm tones. I have to do this, but I'll make it fast. All right? It won't hurt. Charlie tried to answer, but he could only sputter. He nodded his head, then tilted it back and looked at the sky. As if beseeching the heavens to intercede, Tres Dedos reached up his sleeve and brought out a long-bladed knife. With a smooth, swift motion, he drew it across Charlie's exposed neck. Blood jetted from the wound, splashing Tres Dedos and the dirt beneath him in more or less equal measures. Charlie's body spasmed him a few times, each one spraying out more blood, his boots wrapping against the earth like a dancer at a fandango. And then he slumped over sideways. The flow of blood from the gaping wound at his neck slowed to a trickle. Tres Dedos turned back to me. There seemed to be as much blood outside him as inside, but most of it belonged to his foes. When he grinned, showing blood-spattered teeth, one eye already swelling shut, the sight was horrifying. A wrong turn led the last two members of the posse into a box canyon. 
a spring high up on the far wall of the canyon dribbled water down the steep rock face, and where it landed, a small pool had formed. Observing them from above, my men and I heard them shouting and arguing with each other. One of them was Sheriff Marshall. Water! Sea roads! I knew we'd find some this way! Those walls are pretty steep. I still don't like the idea of walking into some place where we don't know where we'll end up. Now that I saw Rhodes again, I knew for certain that he was the same ex-army officer who'd almost shot me during the raid on Garland's draw. Marshall picked up his pace, eager to reach the pool. Hell, we haven't known where we end up all damn day. Why is this any different? I don't know. I just don't like the feel of it. Listen here, I'm in charge of this outfit. Not much of an outfit left, is it, Ben? Two of us. Two more may be alive, and maybe not. That was gunfire we heard earlier, after all. From the sound of it, the men's nerves and tempers were frayed. Marshall reached the pool ahead of Rhodes, dropped to his belly, and plunged his head in. He splashed with his arms and drank deep. When Rhodes caught up, he laid down the rifle, dipped his canteen, filled it, and took a few big swallows. Distracted by their thirst and the tension between them, they remained unaware of me spying on them from atop of the canyon walls. I'm glad we found water, Ben. But I don't like it here. There's no way out but the way we came in. Marshall pointed to the rock wall on either side of where the spring water seeped down. The rocks were jagged. A man could climb there. He had to. Could, I reckon. Wouldn't be easy, though. You in a hurry to leave? Rhodes started to reply, but a noise behind them silenced him. He spun around to discover five more of my men coming for them, blocking the only way out of the canyon. Ben, easy now. Don't start. We got company. Don't give him any reason to shoot. Marshall scowled, sat up quickly, and turned around. When he saw the hostile Mexicans, his face blanched. Think we could climb the wall and get back shot? Back or front, don't make much difference. Rhodes' rifle was on the ground. By the time he could draw his pistol, we could shoot. He glanced back at the wall again, perhaps thinking about risking the climb. And this time, he saw me and three others standing on top of it, looking down. I smiled at him. That's good water, isn't it? Sometimes I drink from there. Other times there are too many animals, and the smell of their shit keeps me away. You're lucky it rained hard the other day. Wash some of it away. Rhodes stood perfectly still, but Marshall's right hand inched toward the gun at his hip. I saw it and pointed a rifle at him. The other men around me did the same. I wouldn't do that, Sheriff, unless you're reaching for the gun so you could drop it into the spring. Actually, I had a mind to put a bullet in your head, mister. Trying that would just get you killed. And if you fell into the water, you spoil it for those that depend on it. We can't have that. How about if you raise your hands and back away? How about if you fuck your Mexican whole mother? 
My smile vanished. Ben, that isn't very neighborly. We ain't neighbors. We are now. Only, you're in my neighborhood. You might have noticed that you're surrounded. I did. I would like you to drop your guns to the ground. Easy. Pluck them with two fingers and put them down where I can see them. Or what? Or you'll die where you stand. You expect us to believe you won't kill us anyway. That's not my goal. I want you to live. I want you to carry a message to the other lawmen around California and all who mistreat my people. The fact that Marshall and his men had tortured and terrorized innocent Mexicans while hunting me could not be forgotten or forgiven. That chance I'll carry anything for you. I think you will. The guns, please. Best do as he says, Sheriff. They wanted us dead. We'd already be there. Marshall hesitated, but ultimately he agreed. He pulled his pistol free with two fingers and dropped it onto the earth. Rhodes followed suit. I'm coming down. Remember, if you go for those guns, you're both dead. We get it. Whatever you got in mind, just get it done. I climbed down beside the spring water, just where my prisoners had thought it might be possible to go up. Having done this before, I knew exactly where to put my feet. In moments, I was down where they were. My men on ground level behind them moved in closer, keeping their long guns trained on the two Americans. Rhodes scowled. I couldn't blame him for worrying about his chances. I walked up to Marshall. I was slightly taller than the sheriff, but not by much. Take off your boots. My boots? Did you get water in your ears? Yes, your boots. Why should I? Because I told you to. If you want to live another minute, take them off. Marshall grumbled, but he sat down in the dirt and pulled off his boots. Now what? This will hurt. I crouched beside the sheriff and took one stocking foot in my hand. Gripping it tightly, I snatched a knife from my belt and slashed the bottom of Marshall's foot before the other man could react. Marshall screamed and yanked his foot back, leaving a trail of blood on the ground. Now the other one. Are you fucking crazy? Instead of answering, I grabbed the other foot and wrenched it toward me. I sliced that one too. Marshall screamed again. I released him and stood. That's the message. You might be able to walk, but it'll hurt like hell. You might never walk right again. I don't know. I'll send men back with the horse for each of you. Canteens, bedrolls, everything you'll need to get home. And when you do, let all the lawmen know what happened. And let them know that any man who comes after me is going to regret it as long as he lives, which might not be long at all. You're listening to Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral. Blood and Gold is a Realm production in association with Stryker Entertainment. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real. It's intimate. And it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Blood and Gold stars Richard Cabral. Based on the novel Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Murrieta by Jeffrey J. Marriott and Peter Murrieta. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Adapted for audio by Greg Cox. Directed by Fred Greenhalge. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, Russell Binder, Peter Murrieta, Julian Yap, and Richard Cabral. Historical notes read by Elena Ray. Spanish dialogue translated by Alana Grafham. Regional dialect coaching by Luis Armando Mercado Campos. Sound design by Eric Mooney. Mixing, mastering, and additional sound design by Rory O'Shea. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original score by Juan Carlos Enriquez. Music supervision by Marcus Begala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Production coordinator, Angela Yee. Casting by Sunday Bowling and Meg Mormon. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Blood and Gold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>